So we're in week two of Advent. A son is given. We find our place in life most clearly, not by what we accomplish, what we do. And there's plenty to do. There's plenty of work to be done. But we anchor our lives in what's been given. Not what we do, but what God's done in Christ. And that's kind of the impetus for this Advent message. We're looking at seven verses in the book from the old prophet Isaiah about 2,700 years ago. Book. Isaiah 9, he writes, There'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. We could just stop right there and just let that sentence be with us, couldn't we? In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So you have enlarged the nation and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the oak, the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of His government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the passion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Indeed, you have taken our heart of stone, our hearts of stone, and made them flesh, alive, breathing, pliable and vulnerable and open. active, living. This is what you have done, God. We gather in that reality, not what we can or might do. So speak from your word afresh, God, to us. Your word is that which endures. It's not ours. So bring it to us again this morning in a way that calls us forward. Just touching the same zeal and passion that you have for things that last. 
for things that are good and holy, that stand against the darkness and the impurity where our feet trod. God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mighty God, that's the second name Isaiah places upon this child he is forthtelling. Isaiah is likely writing between the years 733 and 722 B.C. Why do we think that? Because he singles out these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. See, in 733, which comes before 722, right? Because it's B.C. Those two tribes were the first to fall to a conquering army from the north, Assyria. 733, Zebulun and Naphtali, they succumbed first. Later, 722, the rest of that region, the northern kingdom, would also fall and surrender and start being displaced by Assyria. So Isaiah singles them out as if he's talking to them. They were surely a people in gloom darkness. It was a gloomy time for the entire region. The other tribes, the other several tribes in that north, they saw what happened to Zebulun and Naphtali, those people groups. They knew that Assyria was poised to come after them as well, and they would be right. They did. Gloom, that's what it felt like. Gloom is the anticipation of harm. Those in the Galilee region, that north came to be called Galilee, they were anticipating great harm. And Isaiah's been preaching to these tribes in particular, and much of his book, the first 39 chapters of it, it's pretty gloomy. He's got some pretty tough things to say to them about what's about to go down. But interesting, he interjects these messages of hope. He, he, he kind of punctuates right in the middle of all the hard talk. He'll, he'll break out in a futuristic uh, foretelling and prophecy that, that really shines some light in the middle of all the gloom. And that's what this passage is about. He says the time's coming when the gloom will be doomed. It won't be around anymore. Isaiah is envisioning a future of enlightenment and growth and joy and freedom and peace. And in this process that Isaiah is kind of painting this interlude, this picture, he introduces a figure right in the middle of it, a child, a son to be given. He portrays this child as one who will bear the weight of a government, of a kingdom. And he, he lays these royal, these are royal names, they're kingly names that he's bestowing on this child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he, and he goes out of his way to say this region of Galilee, this gloomy northern kingdom is somehow some way going to be part of the inauguration of this child to be born, this son to be given. 
I want to fast forward now a little bit, 750 years or so. I want to go to a description by the gospel writer Matthew. He's talking about Jesus getting ready to start his ministry. This is in Matthew 4, 12 to 17. He says, when Jesus heard that John, that was his first cousin John, John the Baptist, he'd been put in prison, Jesus withdrew to look where? Galilee. He lived in Capernaum in the area of, well, don't you know it, Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. And then Matthew tells us, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This seed that Isaiah plants in the ground in 7 whatever B.C. It's now popping up from the dirt. Matthew sees it. The Holy Spirit inspires him to make the connection. Isaiah chapter 9, tucked away on somebody's scroll somewhere that somebody found. And Isaiah writes, He will be called Mighty God. He will shatter the yoke that burdens people. There's a lot of yokes out there burdening people, isn't there? Maybe you are prone to carry a couple of them around yourself. It says he'll shatter that yoke, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, even the warrior's boot, even his armor rolled in blood will be fuel for the fire. There'll simply be no need for those battle clothes anymore. The government will be on his shoulders of the greatness of his government and peace. There'll be no end. He goes on. He'll reign over David's throne, over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness. We've already read this, but you almost can't hear that enough. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. This child who started as we start, birth, Weakness, vulnerable, born in a barn, born to peasant parents, Isaiah wants to tell us, is truthfully mighty God come in the flesh. He would have figured that. Mighty. What comes to mind when you hear that word, mighty? What What do you think of? I think a mighty mouse. I don't know why. It's just kind of like loved that cartoon growing up, you know. Strong, able. That's kind of a core meaning of the word in, in the Hebrew is able, mighty. He's capable. He's able. He has the authority to do what needs to be done. He's trying to tell us this child will have the strength the ability, the authority to do whatever he sets out to do. Mighty God. How has Christ been mighty God in your life? 
We'll often talk about Christ as, you know, our counselor, our brother coming in weakness, our Savior. How has He been mighty, God, for you? How has He been strong for you in your life? How has He been authoritative? How has He been able for you? Is He your mighty God? Is He that for you? Have you come to know Him like Mason has? Mighty God. Strong presence of my life. Capable of doing immeasurably more than I could ever dream or think. Do you know Him? Do you know God strong? We're going to look at a passage in the New Testament. We're fast-forwarding again in the book of Mark. We're going to start with the very first gospel words that we have record of, Mark. We're going to look at an, a series, really, kind of, of narratives that Mark's going to roll as he does from one to the other immediately. And, and I hope you'll get this composite of Jesus as our mighty God. That's what. We're after. So Mark starts his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the first sentence we get. It's the first sentence of antiquity about Jesus right there. Written maybe about AD 50. Isn't that cool? This is the beginning of the gospel, Mark writes. As it is written in, well, look who he quotes, Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice as one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. It's hard to get away from Isaiah. His voice just kind of rings out all through the pages of the gospel of the New Testament. I know that we're, we're having a women's Bible study starting in the first of the year next year from Isaiah. I'd highly encourage you to be part of that. It's hard to get away from him. He loved in the middle of all his hard talk to interlude with this prophecy, this promise, these words of hope. So he's talking about John the Baptist. He writes, So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the whole Judea countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They confessed their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mason, I don't do that. I'm not going to do that today when we baptize you. But this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than me, whose straps of, sand, of his sandals I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie. I baptize you just with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was also baptized by John. That, when you hear that, when Mark wrote that, he, he meant you to go, what? Let's try it together. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, one more time. It can do a little bit better. One, two, three. What? Yeah. See, Mark's just told us that John's preaching repentance. He's baptizing for forgiveness of sin. And up walks his first cousin saying, me next. And maybe he was in line. I don't know how it went. And, and Matthew tells us a little more when that happened, when Jesus comes up in line. John goes, oh, <laughs> I'm not baptizing you. You may be my cousin, but you are my Lord. I'm not worthy to baptize you. So what was behind this? Like, why would Jesus see the need to be baptized? Well, that's a big theological question that would take Dave Clawson, take me four days, it'd take Dave about four minutes to explain. But, but I think at least part of it was this. Jesus is identifying himself with us. He's identifying himself with sinful women and men. Later, Jesus said he would be baptized to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. Truth is, Jesus didn't need to be baptized for forgiveness of sin or repentance. He knew no sin. But baptism is, is really just the first step for Jesus. Maybe not even the first one, but it's one of the steps where he's identifying himself with sinful men. See, later, three years later, he would do it again. You know the story? At the cross, he would bear the weight of the sin of women and men. He would stand in our stead. So Jesus is baptized, and as he's coming out of the water, Mark tells us, he saw. Mark's careful to say he saw. Maybe no one else saw it, I don't know, but Jesus did. He saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven speaks, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mason, I also can't promise this is going to happen this afternoon. You might see heaven ripped open. You might see the Spirit descend like a dove, and you may hear a voice, but I cannot promise any of those things. But Jesus did. Heaven being ripped open. What in the world was that like? I want you to hear from old Isaiah one more time. Isaiah 64. He cries out to God and he says, Oh, that you would rend, tear the heavens and come down. That the mountains would tremble before you. Isn't that interesting? Heaven's open to Jesus. The whole kingdom of heaven opens up. And to Him, they never close. 
The Spirit of God descends on Christ in an unprecedented way. And the voice of God speaks. You are my Son whom I love. There are some of you in this room who long with all your being to hear that from your Father. With you I am well pleased. Can you imagine how pivotal those words were for Jesus? How deeply encouraging that what they were for Him? Yeah, he already knew it, but just to hear it. You're my son, and whom I am well pleased, whom I love. I would imagine those words he played back in, in hard times. I, I bet he did. I bet he drew great strength from them. Is Christ your mighty God? Is your life punctuated with times of you knowing that voice from God? You are my daughter. You are my son whom I love. I'm proud of you. I'm proud you belong in my family. Christ is your mighty God. That's the word He wants to speak to you. That's the pivotal word that changes our status. That's the transformational way by which we can live in the, in, in the muck of our lives. You are my daughter. You're my son. Mark writes, at once the Spirit sent Him into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, as if Satan wasn't bad enough. And the angels attended him. That's the first thing the Spirit did after he descended. Sent. He sent Christ. He's been sending ever since. But this first trip wasn't a 40-day retreat on the beach with unlimited refills on coffee. It was into the wild. With Satan fully present, lurking with temptation, lurking with accusation, with condemnation, as were ravenous beasts, that would be pretty disturbing. It was not a sabbatical. A season like that, 40 days with Satan and ravenous beasts, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to make you or break you. Actually, maybe they're going to do both. Jesus experienced God as mighty God during those times. This morning, as I was doing my final prep, I was thinking about hard times, and I I thought about a passage in the book of Job that was really, really meaningful for me in a dark time, one of those times when God just spoke strength into me. I hope you have those passages. I hope you have those words from God that during challenging times you can hear God saying them over you. Mark goes on and says, after John was put in prison, 
Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There's a, there's a newness. Jesus has come out of this 40 days. And, and rather than being like worn out, there's a newness and an urgency in his voice. God is up to something. That's what the kingdom has come near kind of means. God is showing up. His kingdom is coming near. You know, we use that word kingdom a lot. It's about as comprehensive as a term as you can use. Kingdom. There's a whole lot in a kingdom. Right? There's royalty. There's all, there's knights. There's peasants. There's mountains and rocks and rivers and all kinds of things in kingdoms. Jesus says the kingdom of God, can you try to envision what all is in that one? He says it's come near. It's at hand. People that Isaiah was writing about government, people that Jesus was talking to about kingdom, they had their own ideas about what God's kingdom would look like if it ever showed up. They had their own ideas about if, the, if this Messiah ever comes, this son to be given, what that kingdom would look like. And it was a kingdom of might and power, and it was political. And they had no idea. They thought they had big dreams about that kingdom. And Jesus came along and said, your dreams are way too small. They had no idea the kingdom Jesus was bringing. So Jesus says, repent. That word means change the way you're thinking about this. And believe the good news. Jesus is challenging them to open their minds. He's bringing a kingdom. And then Mark tells us, Jesus goes on a walk. Remember, Mark moves us from one scene to the next. He's not playing. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They're casting their fishing net in the lake. And Jesus says, come follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets, and they followed him. And then he keeps walking, and he sees James and his brother, John. Sons of thunder, they call these guys. They were preparing their nets without delay. He called them and they left their father, Zebulee, Zebedee, the business owner. They left him in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. There, there's an at, at onceness, if that's a word about this. There's an at onceness. Jesus isn't negotiating terms. He's issuing a call for these two sets of brothers to come to him and to follow him. Mark doesn't tell us too much. He doesn't tell us how disruptive this had to be to these guys. He didn't tell, tell us how costly it had to be for, for James and John's father, Zebedee. He doesn't tell us. Mark's not trying to paint a romantic picture. He's not creating a Hallmark Christmas movie. He's saying this is how it went down. And so it begins. We have the first four followers of Jesus. And they begin a generation of broken, emerging believers who follow in this way, this 
unconditional obedience to Christ. To leave where they are and follow with abandonment. They, these four guys have no idea the movement they're beginning. The ones who are going to come after them. The others who are going to leave even family behind. They can't see it. They would be shocked to know that 2,000 years later, this has not stopped. This men and women, boys and girls, Masons and Alexes and Gingers and Rachels leaving behind and following. A radical response to the mighty God. The world's not been the same since these four guys got out of their boat. So they went with Jesus. They went to Capernaum. And it was the Sabbath. And Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And Mark tells us the people were amazed. They were breathtaking by his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority. Jesus is starting to teach and it's creating a disturbance. People are alarmed by it. And they're not the only ones. Listen to this last story. Just then, a man in the synagogue who is possessed, overtaken, overwhelmed, inhabited by an impure spirit, he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? See, this is the point when these demons say, What? What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is quite a scene going on right here. These unclean spirits are as disturbed as the people. But there's a distinction. The distinction is they sort of know who Jesus is. I know who you are. There's a tone of surprise in their voice, though. What they're really saying is, what business do you have with us? Have you come to destroy us? There's a bit of mockery. Don't take this as a sign of uh, reverence when they say, you're the Holy One of Israel. See, the common belief in that day is when I used your name in addressing you, somehow I had mastery over you. So when these demons are saying, you're the Holy One of Israel, you're Jesus of Nazareth, their dark, demented mind said, we'll gain control over Him. We'll have the upper hand. Well, that was a really, really bad idea on their part. And what I want you to see here is Christ the mighty God in action. Be quiet, he says sternly. Come out of him. And these demons are absolutely defenseless. Jesus gives a command. The, 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 the normal way of dealing with him, clean spirits, during that day was incantations and spells and magic. Jesus only needs to say a word. Be quiet. Come out. Mark tells us the impure spirit shook the man so violently and it came out of him with a shriek. Mighty God. 
they could not avoid or evade what Jesus was doing. There was no running and hiding. Jesus shows His strength for anyone to see. I promise you the effect of this encounter was absolutely breathtaking for people. Put yourself there. Mark's going to give us the effect on the readers. He wants the crowd to tell us. The people were so amazed, they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority, He gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey. And everyone is astonished, and so news spreads over the whole region of where? You see it? Say it. Galilee. That obscure place Isaiah wrote about 750 years earlier. In the future, he said, Galilee will become a place of hope. A light will dawn there. The rod of oppression will be lifted. There will be increase. And of the greatness of this government, there will be no end. Right out of that obscure place, the kingdom is near. Almighty God was present. The empire was striking back. And the disturbance in the force, sorry, among men and spirits is alarming. It had begun. So Isaiah says, God will honor Galilee of the nations. 750 years ago when Isaiah writes these words, it actually had the effect of forcing the people of God to make a decision. They're living in the approaching army of Assyria. And and they know that, spiritually speaking, they've brought this on themselves. They've practiced idolatry. Their disobedience was rampant. And Isaiah was reminding them of that. And they knew they were in trouble with God. But Isaiah brings this message of hope. And so then they had a decision to make. Will we allow our gloomy circumstances to so color our lives that we will give up all hope? Or will we trade our despair and trust this word that God has spoken through this prophet? Will we anchor our hope into a coming son to be given? Will we conjure an authentic faith that's willing to look past the immediate crisis? Would they come to trust the word of God? Would they place their hope in this mighty one? Upon whose shoulders a kingdom government would rest. A good government of love. An empire with no imperialism. A rule with no exploitation. A reign by a Savior to be born who would enlighten their way. Give joy even in the midst of their trouble. Freedom and peace. I'll leave you with this. Isn't it a bit ironic that now 2,700 years later, we have that same kind of decision? 
we have a whopping big advantage. Our child has been born. Our son has been given. It's not one day someday for us. He has come. This season we wait in anticipation of that. He is coming. He has come. He has been given for us, to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son for us. Christ has come as mighty God. And the gates of hell will not withstand it. Let's pray together. Indeed, You are mighty God. Lord, as we close this morning, as we transition away from this room, walk with us into where our feet are going to trod and the complexity, the impurity, and the hurt, and the brokenness of those places. Walk with us as mighty God. Give us grace to believe in this Word that You've spoken through Your prophet, through Your Gospel writer, in the life of the teaching most profoundly the death and resurrection of this child who was given. God, may we know You as mighty God in our lives. May we learn the way of being strong in the Lord. May we learn to depend upon You in our 40 days, our times of testing, and our seasons of difficulty and gloom. May You speak, breathe words of hope and comfort, and may that be enough for us to hold on to. I know these are big asks. God, would You help us? It's beyond us. It's more than we can imagine. But You are mighty God. Save us. We pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.